Hello, Tiger Nation. I am Byron Hulsey, headmaster at Woodbury Forest School, and I would like to welcome you to the Woodbury podcast series. This podcast consists of informal yet substantive conversations with alumni, faculty, staff, and students. The conversations explore how Woodbury's core values empowered alumni to build a solid foundation for their lives, how those core values are taught today by Woodbury teachers, and how those values are put into practice by today's students. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Woodbury podcast. Very excited today to welcome uh, Deborah Wilson, who is president of the National Association of Independent Schools. I've known Deborah for a, a long while. She previously served as general counsel to NAIS, and then most recently has been president of the Southern Association of Independent Schools, SAIS. It's great to have you on the podcast, Deborah. Thanks for taking a little bit of time, and I've been looking forward to our conversation, so thank you. Excellent. Thank you for having me, Byron. I'm also looking forward to the conversation. We we have yet to have a boring conversation in the many years we've known each other. <laughs> I always look forward to them, and I'm sure this one will be, be great, too. So, Deborah, tell us a little bit about your, your work as president of NAIS. It sounds like I would rather be chairman of the Middle East than uh, president of, of NAIS. <laughs> I, what, what, what are your biggest challenges and and what are your biggest opportunities? Tell us a little bit about your work. It's 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 a really important job you have. Yeah, you know, it's um, Byron. I'm, every day I think about one one time you told me that it's not it's not my job to solve all of the problems of the world, and so I um, I think about that on a pretty regular basis. You know, I think I'm at finally at the end of month six, maybe. So I think I've been I've been in the seat for six months, and it you know I think some of the challenges are similar to other kind of new leadership roles when you come into a new leadership position. I was obviously at NAIS for a long time before, but you know the furniture has definitely been moved around um, since I left, and so coming coming at it. From a different position, getting to know the staff again. You know, we have new staff members who obviously weren't weren't here when I was here before. Um, the organization's gone largely virtual in that time. Um, so really spending a lot of time getting to know the staff again, getting to know the board members, understanding how our culture has shifted a bit to online. And, you know, we have big, exciting things moving around. We're doing a big strategic brand study. So a lot of member engagement, getting a lot of feedback from school leaders, you know, including heads and other administrators, you know, because why not? We're actually going to move offices so that we can do more institutes in our actual office um, as schools across the country and around the world actually have faced the bills at grocery stores and other places are not going down. And that goes for hotels and things, too. So. Right. This office move will allow us to to do more with schools in the office and hopefully cut some of those costs. So just as with any other leadership role right now, particularly in education, you know, the attack by Hamas in Israel on October 7th has certainly really focused our conversations on, you know, how do we how do we talk across difference? How do we support school leaders you know, and how do we how do we work with schools to really meet this moment? Especially as we kind of get ourselves into a national election year, I think many of us in the school world are are interested and in, and in committed to trying to do that, even in these these polarizing times. So uh, I'm I'm sure that's on your mind too. Oh, very very much so. And as I think you and I have discussed before, you know, ra raising educated citizens is a big piece of what we do as schools and. And I think part of that education is, you know, 
how do you talk to people who have different ideas than you do and you disagree and might always disagree and that's okay like that's actually part of democracy so yeah you'll see planning around that you know our annual conference comes up at the end of february so we've got some sessions on that but then also we have some different institutes this summer um, and you'll see some things online too for teams from independent schools because you know some some years i i kind of yearn for the elections of I don't know, 2000, 1993, four, whatever, um, they, they were a little less combative than what we experience right now. This climate is challenging. That is that is for sure. Deborah, tell us a little bit about your your sense of the of the state of independent schools. Is this um, a good time for independent schools, a challenging time, all of the above? What are the biggest rocks in the jar from your perspective? Yeah, I am. I always go with C, all of the above, right? Like there are really bright spots among our schools. There was a report, Wishy actually, it's the, is it like the Washington International College and something education report. They actually revisited their enrollment projections for private schools, maybe 2001. And, you know, projections for graduates from private schools is actually up from where people Mm -hmm. thought it was. There are big chunks of the country, including in the South, that They didn't give back their COVID enrollment bump, but, you know, there's only so many people in the country. So some of that enrollment bump has been due to families moving from one part of the country to the other part of the country. So, you know, where you might see some markets suddenly swimming in families, you might see other markets that are seeing a downturn, you know, for the first time in 25 years. So it just sort of depends a little bit where you are on the enrollment front right now. But, you know, I think our schools are doing what they always do, you know, they're providing transformational educational experiences. And it's probably no more important at any other time in history than it is right now. When you look at, you know, how our schools have done in terms of learning loss, in terms of supporting students, you know, we've really come through a really difficult window supporting our families very successfully. So to me, all of that is on the upswing. The big, you know, the big rocks that are taking up a lot of space in leaders' heads really relate to you know the polarization we already talked about. You know, how do you hold the community together during polarized times? How do we meet this moment when it comes to student health and wellness? The issues that we're seeing with kids around anxiety, around depression, and really getting into lower grades. We've had, you know, some schools really wrestling, particularly with middle schoolers and their mental health. That's been a huge issue. And then just recruiting for teachers and other administrators. You know, how do we make sure that we are getting, you know, the best, the brightest, the most engaging in our schools to really help provide this education and how do we make sure that we remain on the cutting edge of, you know, pedagogy and supporting our schools. So those are kind of the the big ones off the top of my head. As you know, I've got a running list of about 20 things that I track at any given point in time. And I, you know, I think it's all of that ends ends up being a challenging time for leaders. I'm happy to report actually the leadership turnover is down a bit for oh, this good. academic year. Yeah, that's a that's a plus in my mind. But you know, the, the the thing is is as I talk to school leaders, they're telling me this is a lot. They're managing a lot. There's a lot of demands on them. As rewarding as these jobs are, they're also they're hard jobs and they're not getting easier. I was I had um, lunch not too long ago with a college president, and I just I thanked him for, for for the work that he's doing. And I said, you know, on those rare occasions when I feel sorry for myself, I think about you, and I feel better. 
Yeah, I've, I've had a couple of those conversations lately too. And it's, you know, but it's funny, you know, when you talk to the college presidents, particularly about managing the really difficult conversations, you know, about the Middle East, about the Israel-Hamas war. When you talk to some of them, you know, I, I similarly had lunch with a college president. He said, oh yeah, we've been We've been building capacity to meet this moment since 1950. And I was like, okay, that's not going to help most of my school. <laughs> but, you know, and, and, you know, and even he said, you know, it's still really, really hard, but, it, you know, we, we feel like we've got good support systems in place, but, you know, it, it takes a long time to, to build the capacity to, to meet these moments. Are you anxious about what you're seeing in the world of higher ed? I'll, I'll, I'll play my card on the table. I am. I think it's a really tough time for the world of higher ed and, Generally speaking, gravity moves down and the challenges that higher ed faces, we will face too if we're not already. And that that kind of makes me anxious. What's your take on higher ed right now? Yeah, I well, as you know, I call higher ed. It's the, the big bird sized canary in the coal mine, right? Um, yeah. they, they 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 tend to go first. And I do, I think they um there are a few things that I've been thinking about there, you know, definitely seeing kind of the tens tensions around politics and what that looks like on their campus. I'm not quite as worried about that trickling down into our schools in quite the right. same way because we're we're working with minors. Right. Um, their their cost model mm-hmm. is so incredibly out of hand. I mean, when you're looking at private colleges and in some cases looking at 90, 95,000, I know University of Chicago, at least a couple of years ago, was projected to be the first university to get over $100,000 in tuition. I don't know if they've crossed that line yet, but those are they're pretty big numbers and, you know, and they affect us too, because a lot of our parents are looking at the cost of higher education after they're looking at, you know, K-12 tuition. The biggest thing I hear from our schools about higher education is just how random college admissions has gotten. You know, the, I think um, applications are up, not applicants, but applications are up 150% in the last, I don't know, something like 10 or 15 years. And those are big numbers, you know, when you're looking at you know, you're looking at Clemson in 2019, they I think they got about 25,000, 26,000 applications. And this current academic year, they got 60,000 applications yeah. for about 4,500 spots. So when we look at our schools, you know, there are parents who are looking for their kids to go to very specific colleges. And I just don't know that that's as easy to predict anymore. You know, our value add is and has always been the preparation that we're helping these students attain before they go on to the next level of education, talking to parents about that and helping them understand what college admissions looks like now, and I think is a very, it's a, it's a tough set of conversations. Yeah, the unpredictability of it all, I think, is just generates a lot of anxiety, to say the least. And, yes. Uh, and, and it makes it hard to you know, hard to stay in, in open, transparent, positive relationship with all parties when it's so unpredictable. Right, right. When, particularly when we know that, I mean, at least what the Gallup studies and some other studies say is, you know, it's not where you go to college, but what you do when you get there, right? And our kids from independent schools, from NAIS schools, engage in those behavior at higher rates than kids from other types of schools. And, and we know that. that. That is comforting for us. It's less comforting in the moment for certain students who have their hearts set on a particular institution. And, and you know, of course, sometimes they're, they're parents too. So I, I hear you on that. Deborah, I know for many years, one of your keen interests has been well-being, in particular for, for students and young people, but also for 
or faculty and, and heads of school, what in your mind is are, are, are some of the most significant challenges to, to young people's well-being these days, their mental health? What, what's on your mind? And a, a follow-up question to that would be, when you see schools managing it well, what are you seeing? You know, I have to say, like, what, what I see, you know, it's a continuation of, of sort of the, the numbers, particularly around depression and anxiety that we saw building, you know, starting around 2010. I'm not somebody who necessarily blames everything on cell phones, but my guess is social media doesn't help. You know, we know that a pretty large percent, around 50% of our schools were managing a student with pretty serious suicidal ideation in the first half of last academic year mm -hmm. um, and going all the way down to middle school. What I'm hearing talking to, you know, child psychologists and psychiatrists is more kids, particularly middle schoolers, you know, they were exactly the wrong age when the pandemic hit. More anxiety, more depression. It's going deeper. It's lasting longer. I think it's really hard for Parents to see and identify can be really hard for schools to see and identify, particularly high achieving kids in schools where that, you know, kind of high achievement is an expectation. In terms of what schools can do, I think being open to having conversations with parents so that they know that schools understand that this is an issue. I think when parents are trying to manage something at home and they don't feel like they can partner with the school because their child is going to be stigmatized. I think that's probably one of the most challenging issues that families are facing on their end as they try to support their kids. Mm -hmm. Some of it for schools is really identifying, you know, how are we potentially feeding some of these issues? You know, right. whether it's, you know, focus on rigor, focus on workload, helping kids develop other skills so they can advocate for themselves. So they've got higher levels of executive function so that they can engage with the school to get the support and help that they need. But there's no silver bullet. You know, as I talk to schools, you know, a lot of schools have been hiring more counselors or they've been building out their advisory programs. All of those things, I think, help, but nobody's found a silver bullet yet. For the adults, you know, what some schools are doing, I think, with good success, you know, they're kind of creating like little kind of support pods or learning cohorts within their schools so that, you know, teachers don't feel like they're isolated in their classroom. You know, they've got the that network of colleagues and in a more structured and, and deliberate way than we've historically done. You know, and we know through authentic connections groups that that kind of support can actually work and actually really make a difference in the lives of adults. So, you know, I'm seeing some promising glimpses out there. But like I said, I don't, nobody's found the silver bullet to support all of it across the board. But we do know that it's vital, particularly for our students before they go on into higher education, that they have the skills to advocate for themselves, to know when they might need extra supports and you know, to reach out if they feel like they're, they're struggling. One thing that you and I have not talked about that's been good at Woodbury this year is we've kind of re we've tweaked our daily schedule and weekly calendar. I feel like that's worked well in terms of clearly prioritizing sleep. Yes, so sleep is a it's sleep a, is huge. It's an under underappreciated contributor to to mental health. Some Which is a little bit ironic, right? Like as parents, we all went through those sleepless windows. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. We know. I mean, I don't. I can't speak for you, but I know I was not okay. <laughs> right. You know, sleep is. You know, I've said it's with all critical. three. It is magic. I've said with all three of my kids, like. Yeah. Their superpower might be getting enough sleep, at least through certain windows. And we know 
you know, NAIS acquired Independent School Health Check a few years ago. You know, correlation is not causation, but when you look at the data between how much homework kids report that they have, the amount of sleep that they're getting, and then suicidal ideation, those right. things all kind of work together. The the less sleep kids are getting, the more they're reporting, you know, lower mental health scores. Sleep is a big thing. We have start we're starting our academic day later, and we have also shortened study hall to allow in, in Woodbury's case, the boys to uh, to blow off more steam before they get back on dorm. And so they're actually re- more ready to go to bed this year than they have been in the past. And I think that's been positive for, for the community as a whole, even while we know that, you know, of course, just like in any school, individual kids are, are, are struggling with all kinds of things. Deborah, do you have a take on um, some of the Great inflation that we're hearing about both at the higher ed level and and in secondary schools, because it seems like great inflation became pretty significant issue in the you know midst of covid. And then for some schools, it's carrying forward. We haven't studied it closely, but there's certainly, I mean, the plural of anecdote is not data necessarily, but you know, we've definitely heard more about that. I think, as you're starting to see some of higher ed turn back to SAT and ACT scores, you know, Dartmouth just announced that right. last week, two weeks ago. I think higher ed is certainly seeing it, and they're having a harder time distinguishing between kids if everybody's you know above average, right? They're sort of like we'll be gone. There's definitely reports reports of that. You know, some schools held the line more than others. I think you know some some schools did it to try to you know ease the anxiety around grades and around you know, assessments in the classroom. And then how do you kind of roll that back? You know, really once, hard, yeah. yeah, once the horse is out of the barn and you've been an A plus kid for three years, you know, suddenly to kind of roll that back to the B plus status is going to be a shock to the system. Yeah. What's interesting to me is that the grade inflation has not reduced the anxiety that young people have. Whenever I'm talking with schools about you know, either helping alleviate faculty burnout or, you know, helping alleviate stress on students. Those little things are not, it's not providing massage chairs on Wednesday. It's not, yeah. you know, like, let's not do grades or let's, you know, only do great grades or whatever, you know, it's it's the process and it's kind of managing the emotions that go with a lot of these things and, you know, and helping people manage those emotions yeah. and really right. talking through it. I mean, it's it's that kind of just messy helping people kind of sit with their feelings and that's tough. And I know you've done some work with this at at Woodbury, particularly with boys. This is not always a conversation we've had openly with boys about managing emotions and to you know get to your point about schedule, like what does it look like to live a healthy life and how do you start getting those habits of mind, habits of body so that that they're very aware of those things and the impact it has on them. Definitely on our minds uh, here at Woodbury. What does it mean to be whole and healthy? Yeah. What time do you all start class now, Byron? No earlier than 8.30, and on Monday morning it's 9. Oh, that's interesting. So I've seen some schools, they do the later start later in the week, but I kind of like the idea of doing the later start on a Monday. I mean, that kind of (laughs) sort of lightens the load on Monday. Yeah, it lightens the load a little bit on Monday. Of course, the faculty is not super enthusiastic about the fact that our faculty meetings are on Monday morning at 8. (laughs) (laughs) But it does, I think, help the boys kind of prepare for a good week. Our goal is to help a boy over a period of time learn how to manage his schedule well 
even though study hall is shorter now, doesn't mean you have to stop studying when study hall is over. If you've got a little more to do, it just opens up the possibility that if you'd like to go work out, you can. Anyhow, th those things right now are, are, are working for us, but this is definitely on my mind. So Deborah, you just raised boys. And of course, Woodbury is an all boys, all boarding school. Let's talk a little bit about what you're seeing out there among boys and young men in general and, and how well schools are addressing those challenges. You know, there was that book that Richard Reeves wrote is it two years ago now, maybe. Yeah, of boys and men, why the modern male is struggling, why it matters and what to do about it. You know, it's been on my mind so when I visit schools, I, I kind of I look for it like I think a lot about it. You know, and, and it kind of gets back actually to the conversation that you and I were just having about schedules, right? Like I'm seeing schools experiment more right now with their schedules than I've probably ever seen them experiment, you know, block schedules, not having every class every day, only having one day a week with every class on that day. Like, you know, and it kind of just varies, you know, they're really revisiting how they're using time. Yeah. And I think some of it is about bringing healthier balance and particularly for boys, you know, when, when schools were really feeling the crunch of like, how do we fit more in every day? Some of the first things that go right are recess. Yeah athletics, you know, that kind of mandatory PE, which we all probably hated when we were in school, but at the same time made sure that you moved around a few times a week. I mean, I think when I was in sixth grade, we had PE at least three times a week. And that has gone the way of the dodo bird, right? Like that's not the norm. But I'm seeing just more more schools experiment with time. And some of it I think is driven by boys. Like they're just they're seeing some of that needing a little more movement, giving kids a little bit more just time in the day to make choices for themselves and not be scheduled full time. Because, you know, I think schools see issues in their in their own hallways, but it's when kids go to college and they're suddenly, you know, faced with mountains of time to organize by themselves. Yeah, that's a, at, that's a huge challenge. It's a huge challenge, right? And they and they get a little lost and they they kind of lose their way. Then they start running into issues around depression and anxiety because suddenly like they're they're sort of twisting in the wind a little bit. It's yeah. it's interesting to me, and I feel like we did a study about this years ago, you know, about boarding school kids, kids like those coming from Woodbury when they get to college you know, what do they do? I mean, being married to somebody who went to an all boys school, he still to this day pretty much does his sport, which is tennis, almost every day. And certainly on the weekends, right? And, you know, the first thing he did when he got to college was, okay, like, what sport am I playing this semester? You know, it kind of was was built into him. And it helped him fill up that time. So, I don't know if everything old is new again, but those are some of the things that I'm seeing out there. Yeah. So we should take a little quick time out and I'll just share with uh, our listeners that Deborah's husband went to Episcopal High School. <laughs> are you allowed to say that on this podcast? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 1200 North. I had uh, Charlie Stilwell was on my podcast earlier. So we're we're ecumenical and inclusive here on the <laughs> podcast. And, Deborah told me the wonderful story from long ago when her husband James was uh, a new boy at Episcopal High School. They went to a seated meal. They were eating fried chicken at the seated meal, and James had the audacity to pick his chicken up with his hands. And the teachers looked at him and scowled and said, Son, where do you think you are? Woodbury Forest? <laughs> <laughs> 
And I said, I will claim that story. That's yep. wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Sometimes you just have to eat your chicken with your hands. I Yes, and, and it still happens here in this house. Um, <laughs> it's... Uh, yeah, that family has that story has now gone down as just Wilson family lore at this point. Yeah, that's a that's a good one. Well, I'm I'm glad with that uh, that Woodbury can be helpful to the Wilson family uh, <laughs> in terms of our practices at Woodbury. So we've talked a little bit about about boys. We've talked a little bit about mental health and and well being. Uh, let's talk a little bit about about faculty recruitment and, and retention. That's certainly an anxiety that I have. The teacher shortage. Who is it that are going to populate and lead and advance our missions on a daily basis in the years to come? What, what, what are you seeing and how do you think we should um, address some of these challenges? I think I think folks are going to come from a few different places. And I think it's actually it's important to know that in the early 70s, out of all uh, college degrees, education degrees were about 20% of them. And now they're about 6%. So wow. Yeah, no, they're they're pretty startling numbers. Everybody's a little bit worried about this. What I'm what I'm hearing from schools, and I think we're going to see this trend continue. You know, public schools really staffed up a lot during COVID. They had a lot of COVID money, um, and we're starting to see that money kind of fall off. You know, and I think as sort of politics has made its way into public school classrooms, yeah. you're seeing public school teachers looking for other other fields to to at least explore. And so I think some of that you're finding in independent schools, which is great. You know, there's definitely a, a there's a culture shift there. But, you know, I've talked to many school, many teachers who come from public schools and really found a happy home in independent schools. So that's sort of one bucket. I think, you know, we will keep seeing kind of younger teachers coming in right out of college. Maybe not as many as we saw before, but I think we'll keep seeing that. Teachers are still definitely sticking around in the classroom. I mean, we are seeing a little bit of flight from the cap classroom, not as much as they're seeing in the public schools. But I, I think actually you're going to start seeing second careers or third careers really show up. Yeah. And that's McKinsey wrote a great article about it. You know, they sort of broke it down into these sort of non-traditionalist personas. And every one of those personas, I'm trying to remember what's it like. One of them is called the relaxers. You know, one of them is the do-it-yourselfers. And they're all looking for... They want fair compensation. They're not looking to make a ton of money in most of those cases. They've had other careers. What's And they're looking for really purposeful, impactful work, which I think our schools own in spades. Like, I think you can really have, I mean, we are such purpose-driven organizations. We're, we're very articulate about our missions and what it is that we're, we're working on and trying to do. And we do it in a different way. I mean, it's kind of why I think, when you look at wellness work and you're raising the whole child and really talking about the whole student, that's really purposeful, supportive, good work that we can do in a way that a lot of schools cannot. And I think that's really appealing. The flip side of that is in a lot of cases, you know, they're a sandwich generation. They might still have kids at home or they're caring for their parents. They're looking for a little more flexibility and this will be the number one challenge for our schools. We're incredibly place-based. Yes. And I think that's important. I think the teacher-student relationship will we know it's crucial. We actually know that the relationship is probably more important than almost anything else that happens in the classroom as the shortage continues and other competitors go to online formats again. I think parents are really going to be looking to make sure that we haven't lost that teacher connection. That being said, the way we normally do business, and I'd love to hear your thoughts because 
you know, there's some very distinct realities in your life. You're in Orange, Virginia. You're not moving from Orange, Virginia, right? So that like, how do we provide flexibility and what is such a place-based service, right? Like what we do is very much based on where we are, but you know, that, that model, that triple threat model that we've always seen in boarding schools and in day schools, I'm not sure it was sustainable to begin with, but that's definitely coming out of the pandemic has been sort of tagged as even less sustainable than it was before. So, I mean, I'd be curious about, about your thoughts on that, but I, I think that how do we think about flexibility? How do we think about the quality of life of our teachers is right. a big question for us. It definitely is. And we, we, we stubbornly hold on to the triple threat model and it's challenging. I, it's interesting. I, I feel like at Woodbury, you know, we were into a, a modified form of flex time before flex time was a thing. And I say that because my experience in day schools, Deborah, was that, you know, you everything happened really quickly and very efficiently from like 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Boarding schools are just different. The days are are longer. <laughs> yeah. And you can like say, well, that's a negative. But you can also say they're slower. And there are chunks of every day where, you know, you can go home and reconnect with your family and your family can join you for lunch or for dinner. So in some ways, the quality of family time in a boarding school can be higher. You know, if I, if there, there are times where I don't, I don't have an appointment until 10 a.m. I can stay home and do work from home in the early morning. And um, that's, I found that much more challenging and difficult um, in the day school world. But the flip side is that the days are, are, are long and uh, the evenings are, are long. I do believe, and of course, I'm highly, highly biased here, but if you want to teach boys, there's no better place to do it than here. And, you know, we, we generate purpose and meaning about as effectively i think as as any school can can do so i'm i'm a fan but it's the, the the biggest challenge is having those kinds of conversations with a willing group of prospective applicants and i think that's what's hard right now is that those pools of of people seem to be drying up some you know so macaulay you know in chattanooga yeah. you know i happen to know that there's like four or five Swanee people who I went to college with who are now all working at Macaulay. And they're kind of, you know, they're in their, you know, second or third careers and they just love the idea now of going back and working in a boarding school. I think one or two of them might've even gone there, but, you know, everybody else is just kind of like, yeah, this is a great place to be. We do have purpose, you know, they have a tie to Tennessee. Like, and so when I talk to friends who are looking for that, you know, it's really appealing to them. I have a friend, you know, he works on Broadway, he does set design, it's fabulous. And they're kind of looking at their next thing. And I'm like, there are fabulous independent schools, beautiful performing arts centers. And they would be thrilled to have somebody like him who's actually got a master's in set design and totally. teach that, you know, and it's a great place for, you know, him to think about. It. And he had never thought about it. It just had never crossed his mind. And I'm like, you know, I've been backstage in his Broadway setup. I've I've seen many bigger performing arts centers in our schools than I have seen in Broadway, you know, theaters because they were all built like in the 20s. They're <laughs> they're not very big spaces. So wow. keeping an eye out for that and, you know, and really talking, you know, exactly as you so eloquently said, you know, it's a it's a lifestyle choice. Yeah. 
and it's a different kind of lifestyle, but it yeah. doesn't it doesn't have to be all consuming and it can be very complementary to a, a really good purposeful life. I, I don't like to talk about a work-life balance because I think that's basically impossible at a place like Woodbury, but I can definitely advocate for work-life alignment. That's important for us in, in the school world. Deborah, um, our time's coming to a, a close. What are one or two uh, reads that you've enjoyed of late that, that you'd like to share with our listeners? So I always have some brain candy going on. A good friend of mine sent me the Helsinki Affair over winter break. So I've been I've been reading that. What's and, it about? You know, it's I have a thing for spy novels, and it's basically <laughs> a spy novel. And then, of course, I read Lessons in Chemistry. I think everybody in the yeah. world has read Lessons in, in Chemistry, and I've got a couple other kind of fiction type books coming up right next to me right now on my desk. I, I actually have a couple books from the Big Idea Book Club that you yeah. identified for me. I probably opened it maybe a month late. It just sat there just um, yeah. building existential angst. So one of them is the right kind of wrong. And the other one is the anatomy of a breakthrough. Right. Um, but the one that I started that's here is called the Addiction Inoculation. And it's raising healthy kids in a culture of dependence by Jessica. Oh, cool! Yeah, I don't know if you've read that one. I've seen um, it. Yeah, and then my other favorite one—you've seen Jenny Wallace kind of out on the circuit. Yes. Yeah, never enough and about mattering. And again, like I, I think that's that's an amazing book. Like I thought that was so helpful when I saw her present the importance of mattering in a child's life as an anti, you know, just as a as a as a push against in this anxiety. If we if we know we matter, our chances of a of a healthy mental balance and well-being is much higher. Yeah. Well, particularly when it's outside of, you know, I talk to my kids a lot about third spaces, you know, outside of your family, outside yeah. of your grades, like yes. how like how do you feel a part of the bigger picture? Yes. And she's actually her next book that she's working on right now is mattering for adults. Yeah. Um, That's so right. important. That's awesome. Yeah. So th- those are kind of on my my top hit parade at the moment. And actually, now that I look at the books next to me, I actually have The Gift of Failure, which is another Jessica Leahy book too. So yeah. apparently I'm, I'm on a, I'm on a jag on that one, but, but yeah. The Gift of Failures is, is probably four books in at this point. Yeah. Well, I've, I've had plenty of those gifts in my life. So. <laughs> 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 it doesn't feel like a gift in the moment has been no, my experience, but, but... <laughs> Uh, well, that's great. Well, Deborah, thank you so much for taking some time. I know how busy you are at NAIS, and uh, I really appreciate you and, and your work and uh, always enjoy conversations with you. So good luck with everything, and I, I hope I see you soon. Excellent. Thanks so much, Byron. Have a great afternoon. You too. Take care, Deborah, and go Tigers. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Woodbury Podcast. We hope you found our discussion insightful and engaging. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider subscribing, rating, or leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. Stay tuned for more conversations in the future. And remember, the conversation doesn't have to end here. Connect with us on Woodbury Forest School social media, reach out with your questions or comments, and let's keep the dialogue going. Until next time, take care and go Tigers!